Please take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. This morning for the congregational reading, we will just be reading verse 13. But when you've found your place, please stand with me and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Good morning. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, I come to you today and thank you that we don't have to be scared of persecution in this country, Lord, to come and worship your name freely. I just pray that you just use this message and let it affect our hearts and help us go out and reach this community for you and ultimately give you all the glory. I pray that you be with Ben and with bless his family, bless all of us, help us get here safely next week. And Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So today is the last sermon in our series, What is Real? As we've gone through the entire book of 1 John, all five chapters. Today, of course, we'll look through John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. And the title of the sermon is, Yes, You Can Know. You know, one thing that's certain in life is that everybody wants to be sure of something. Everyone wants to have some sort of a for sure foundation they can stand on and they can rely on. People want to be sure about their finances. People want to be sure about their spirituality. People want to be sure about things. It's a human nature, I think, something that God has instilled in us for us to desire. We need that in order to feel safe, in order to feel secure in all aspects of our life. You know, one thing I think about is gambling. You know, gambling is something that people seek to do for many different reasons. Um, you know, there's some people who enjoy the high that it gives them or the adrenaline rush. You know, then there's some that uh, do it to impress others. But then some of them do it because they think they can actually get rich from it. You know, but the thing about gambling and many other things in life is this. They're based on empty hope. There's no for sure about any of that. There's no, I know that I'm going to be able to support my family by gambling. It's always a chance. I can't tell you the people that I know that I used to work with who religiously would buy a Powerball ticket every single week because they actually thought that the one in 300 million chance could be them one day. And maybe it can, right? Maybe it could be them. But they had a false sense of security and hope in buying those tickets. You know, you think about all those who frequent the Harris Cherokee Casino, you know, and they go there out of hopes that they'll walk away with loads of money. You know, there are men who work all week to earn a paycheck, and then they'll go and they'll gamble every cent of it away that very day. They have children at home who needs clothes, who needs uh, food, who needs uh, the rent to be paid so they can have a roof over our head. But yet we continually see people reach out for a hope that is a hope by chance only. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it stink, and I want you all to think about this, to place your financial security in the hands of chance? That'd be tough. I don't know if I'm going to have the money or not to pay my bills. I don't know if I'm going to be able to provide for my family. Well, that's what gambling brings. You know, if you ever heard people say, well, you know, the Powerball is really good, the North Carolina education Audit is really good because it's giving more money to schools. Well, I promise you that the mismanagement of our state government 
what they've done is, is they take the, the, the education lottery money and then they pull out of the budget more money and put it somewhere else. So listen, your schools are not getting any more money because you buy a Powerball ticket. It's actually a tax on the poorest uh, echelon of our society. Uh, studies show that people are more likely to buy a lottery ticket if they make less than $30,000 a year. So I promise you, there's nothing noble or honorable in the education lottery or in Harris Cherokee Casino. So when we think about that, we think about chance, and we think about putting our stock and our hope in something that may or may not come through, it scares us. But you know what? God has not made us to rely on a hope that is by chance. God provides a hope that is a no-so hope. Yes, you can know that your eternity is secure. Yes, you can know that you'll be provided for. Yes, you can know that there is a God in heaven who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, and rise again so that you didn't have to pay the price for your own sins. So I'm here today to say that you can know where your eternity lies today. You may be someone who's doubted your salvation. You may be someone who's never been truly born again. But I want to tell you today that if you've been saved, truly born again, that you can't lose it. And I want to tell you too, if you've never been saved, you can have an eternity and a hope that will never, ever go away. It is a no-so eternity. It is something that you can have full confidence in. So today, from 1 John chapter 5, this last little passage that we're going to go through in our series, What is Real? That's been the question that we've been answering this whole time. I want to share with you four different things that we can have confidence in and know that because of our faith in Lord Jesus Christ, that he will come through for us. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I also want to uh, direct you to our welcome centers uh, after service. If you want a sermon notebook, we have those still available, and we have plenty of those those are free. Take them. That'll be something good for you to take notes in. But write this down. The first thing that we can have confidence in because of the Lord Jesus Christ is confidence in our salvation. And we find that in verse 13 that was so well read earlier. Verse 13, 1 John chapter 5, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't it awesome that we serve a God who is capable of ensuring our salvation. He is capable of letting us know for sure where we're going to go when we die. You know, I can't tell you the times that I've been to Solace and I've visited with people who have only weeks to live. There's someone else that I'm going to be going to, to see tomorrow who doesn't have much longer to live. And these people are on the brink of eternity. And there's nothing more precious than to look at someone who's about to breathe their last and then be able to tell you with confidence that they know that when they close their eyes for the last time in this world, that they'll wake up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how can they be sure? Well, it's not because of the good they've done, I can assure you of that. It will not be because of the good that I've done that I will one day stand before God, but it was because of the God we serve. It is because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf that ensures us and that brings us to a place where we can know that we know that we're saved. Amen? So if we go back to the beginning of 1 John, and if you look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, so if, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We need to see where this confidence in our salvation originates. Because, listen, I can stand up here and I can tell you this stuff all day long, but if I don't have a foundation for it to stand on, then it's meaningless. If there's not an origination or a reason that I can tell you this, then you have no reason to hear me out. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and the reason I want to kind of bring this full circle is, is because I want us to see what John has been trying to tell us this whole time. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, 
What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. How is John so confident in this eternal life? Because John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ. John handled him with his hand. He touched Jesus. He hugged Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He knew Jesus in a personal way. You know, the the apostle John was so close to Jesus that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John when he died on the cross. John knew Jesus very well. And here we have John saying, this eternal life that I'm going to spend this entire letter talking to you about is all based upon the foundation of the person of Jesus Christ, the man who I saw, the man whom I touched, the man who I walked with, the man whom I saw do miracles, the man whom I saw hang on a cross, and the man whom I saw resurrected from the dead. Today, I can tell you that your eternal life is for sure, 100% no doubt. It's a no-so faith because I saw the one who is the eternal life. Did you hear what John, 1 John 1, uh, 1 said? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So you say, was with the Father, what does that mean? Well, the same author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John authored the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament. And the first verse of John, chapter 1, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go back to 1 John 1, 2, the eternal life that was with the Father. He is literally saying that Jesus Christ is, not Jesus Christ brings, not Jesus Christ teaches about, but Jesus Christ is in the person eternal life. He's saying the surety that I have that I saw him, I touched him, I spoke with him, I saw him die on the cross, I saw him rise from the dead, the same surety that I have that he existed and is who he said he is, is the same amount of surety that you can have that you have eternal life when you trust in this person named Jesus Christ. He says this, we can, or, or what we can do when we see this is that he was the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. I want us to be very careful to always remember that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is not just less than God. He is not partially God. He is not someone who knows God. But Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God. We can have confidence in our salvation simply because of this. It's very simple. The one who is the author and the finisher of our salvation is God. And today you can have confidence in your salvation. So as John's rounding up this letter and he's speaking to these first century Christians who are struggling through their faith, who are struggling in a pagan society where gods and goddesses of all types and sorts are being worshipped, he's wanting them to make sure that they don't go into the world doubting their salvation. Because today, my friends, if you truly know Jesus and you are doubting your salvation today, you are not of much use to God. 
And the reason I say that is, is because if you're doubting your eternity, then you're not going to be able to lead others to Christ to ensure their eternity. You're going to be so caught up in trying to make sure of your own salvation that you're going to completely forget all those who need to hear about Jesus. Quit saying, well, maybe I didn't pray the right prayer. Quit saying, well, maybe I wasn't in the right place. Quit saying, well, I've done bad things since I've been saved. The Bible teaches us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's not because you're good. It's not because you're perfect. It's not because you've reached some standard of living that no one else can reach. It's because of the one who John handled. It's because of the one he touched. It's because of the one he ate with. It's because of the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead that you can be sure of your salvation. Today, you'll go to heaven one day because of the holiness of the Son of God, not the holiness of yourself. Your confidence is in God and not you. So that's the first thing that we can be confident in today is our salvation. The second thing that I want us to see if you're taking notes is that we can be confident in prayer. We can have confidence in our prayer life. Beginning in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says this, This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask. And God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. To death, And we'll get into that in just a moment. But, you know, I wanted to bring up Islam, the, the, the religion of Islam. And I know I talk about a lot about other religions, but the reason I think it's important for us to know about other religions is because we are no longer living in the day and age where we don't encounter other religions. We're living in the day and age where Asheville, North Carolina, is known nationwide and even worldwide to be a very religiously and spiritually diverse city. We have people moving in here all the time from all over this nation. You can ask Wayne Campbell um, in, in the moving business. People are constantly moving into this area. And they're not bringing the same values that we know and love and have been raised on. They are bringing Hindu values and Buddhist values and Muslim values, atheistic values. They're bringing those here. And now the world is sitting on our front doorstep. We can no longer pretend like this is the protected Bible Belt. We have to understand that when we go to our places of work, when we go into our education facilities, that we're going to encounter other faiths and religions. We need to know enough about them to where we can minister to those people who are serving a hopeless faith and a hopeless religion and hopeless gods. So as I think about Islam and I think about prayer, The thing about Islam is, is that they are commanded to pray five times a day. And when they pray, they face Mecca, which is their holy city in the Middle East. Well, you may think, well, maybe they're asking their God to help them with food. Or maybe they're asking their God to to give them strength or to give them peace. Or maybe they're just having a conversation with their God. That's not the case. They have exact prayers that they have to recite every single day. It is not a conversation that they're having with their God. It is a a prayer recitation. They're basically just praying the same thing over and over and over because they want to make sure they don't make their God mad. He's not speaking back to them, by the way. Muslims do not believe they have a relationship 
with their God, Allah. They don't believe that at all. They simply believe that they have to do the best they can and work very hard so that their God is not angry with them when they die. And that's it. That is Islam in a nutshell. That's why Muslims are willing to get in airplanes and, and, and commit jihad and kill themselves in the name of their religion because they are so unsure about their eternity. They are so in, unable to commune with their God that they, that they have no idea what their eternity is going to bring. So there was one woman who interviewed several Muslims, and this is what um, she said. She said, it's been years since the first mosque visit. Since then, many Muslims have confided in me, this is a woman who used to be Muslim and had converted to Christianity, that despite earnestly praying five or more times a day, God has yet to answer their prayers. Muslims are working very hard, praying five times a day, and God's not answering. Let that sink in. You know, today you talk to a Muslim and you say, are you confident that God, your God, hears your prayers? They're, if they're honest with you, they're going to say no. I have no idea. He's never spoken to me. He's never drawn close to me where I felt his presence. And no, he's never answered my prayers. They are not confident. But you know what? Today, as Christians, as Bible believers, we can be confident that our God hears our prayers, and not only hears our prayers, but he answers our prayers. Not only hears our prayers, but he talks back to us. Not only hears our prayers, but communes with us in an intimate way. Christianity is literally the only faith on planet Earth where we believe that we can have a personal and intimate relationship with our God. We are literally the only ones. Today, there are many people who pray but have no confidence in their prayers. It's just simply a ritual. And unfortunately, there are many Christians that do the same thing. We don't, we don't understand prayer for what it was meant to be. We don't understand the beauty and the power that is in prayer. If you go out here and you look at our core values that are on the, the brick wall as you walk through this door, our second and one of our most important core values is prayer. And we do believe that it is our power source. That if we forsake prayer and if we quit calling out to God in need, when we quit asking God to save souls, listen, the power of God will leave this place. The power of God will leave our lives, and the power of God will not be on our ministries. We must be a people of prayer. Did you hear what John said in verse 14? This is the confidence we have before him. Speaking of Jesus, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have confidence that our God hears our voice. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. There's confidence. You know, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 say this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us receive I'm sorry let, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need there we understand that our God not only hears our prayers but he has paid the price for us on the cross so that we can boldly come to the throne of grace we can boldly plead with our God and share our heart with him and speak with him of the greatest concerns of our life and we can have confidence that he hears us. 
Today, guys, because we are Christians, we can be confident in our prayer life. Verses 16 through 17 get into some other things that have to deal with prayer, and I want to touch on those briefly. If you look at verse 16, the Bible says this, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Sin leading to death is really not fully understood by biblical scholars in this particular passage. John never tells us what this particular sin is that leads to death. But there are a few ideas. The one that I think seems the most reasonable is this. It's the view that the verse seems uh, that it is actually speaking of chastisement unto death. And what that means is there is a verse in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, which say, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is understood and believed that as believers and as Christians, that there are Christians who have walked so far from the faith for so long and have lived in a lifestyle of sin beyond their ability to come back, that the Bible teaches that God will take their life in order to save their soul. In other words, they have gone so far out into sin, they have completely rebelled against God and refused to repent that because they've been bought by the blood of Jesus, God says, it's better for me to take their life and bring them to heaven than to let them continue living in their wickedness. That's how great and wonderful our God is. And I believe that is what John is saying here, that there is a sin that leads unto death, maybe not a particular sin, but it is a repetitive lifestyle of sin that a believer gets into, and when they refuse to repent, God takes charge, and he takes them out of this world. You may know people who you feel have gone through that, who they died way too young where maybe they were saved, you knew they were saved, but they had lived in such gross sin that they died young. You know, one thing that's true is this, that when people forsake the people of God and God himself, God turns them over to Satan, and you know what happens in their sin? They're destroyed. Sin always brings death. Sin always destroys. And if you're saved, listen, Satan can't have your soul. That's over. That's done. But he can take your health and he can destroy you bodily. He can destroy you physically. If you look back at Job, when Satan had to go and ask God for permission to, uh, to inflict pain and harm upon Job, God gave him permission. And Job was able to do everything, or, or Satan was able to do everything imaginable to Job physically because God gave him permission. And I believe to this day, God still allows that to happen. If you think about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts and how they lied to the Holy Spirit about the money that they had got off of the sale of land, and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. Those things can still happen today. That's why if you're a child of God, it is important for you to be a repentant person. It is important for you to live a lifestyle of repentance. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, because you're not. You're going to let people down, and you're going to mess up. But you must be a person of repentance, because God honors repentance. Now, Paul or John here is not saying that we should not pray for those people, but what he's saying is don't expect for God to turn their life around when they have crossed that threshold of their flesh being turned over to Satan for the destruction of their body but the salvation of their soul. So it's very sobering words today for sure. But one thing is for sure, you can have confidence in your prayer life. You can have confidence that Jesus hears your prayer. So the third thing that I want us to see that we can have confidence in is our security. 
So we know we have confidence in our salvation. We know that we can know that we've been born again and that heaven will be our home. But then there's always those questions out there, well, am I going to stay saved? Is, is my salvation going to be secure? Can I know that I know that even if I've messed up, that even if my life has changed at some point after being saved, can I be sure that I'm still going to go to heaven when I die based upon my initial trusting in Jesus Christ? You know, some people may ask me, may ask you, why are you a Baptist? You know, why do you go to a Baptist church? You know, I've even had people tell me before that they didn't want to come here because we had Baptist on the sign, because they had a negative view of what Baptists are. And they said, you know, they're just so, I've had a bad experience with Baptists and things like that. So, so they may ask me, well, why are you a Baptist? Why do you think it's so important to be called a Baptist? You know, wouldn't you consider maybe being in the Church of God or the Assembly of God or maybe a free will Baptist or maybe even a Wesleyan? Why, you know, why, why does it have to be Baptist in the form that you serve in? Well, one of the biggest reasons that I'm not a Church of God or I'm not an Assembly of God or I'm not a free will Baptist or I'm not a Wesleyan is because of the doctrine called perseverance of the saints. Now, I, want, I don't want you to get the wrong impression here, but our form of Baptist theology is rooted in Calvinism. Now, I'm not saying we're Calvinists. I, there's, there's a lot of issues with Calvinism, and so, to some, a lot of people, that's a bad word, okay? So I don't want you to say that we are Calvinists here at Pole Creek. What I'm saying, though, is, is that our vein of Baptists that stemmed from the Great Reformation of Martin Luther were known as people who believed in eternal security. See, there's also another idea that says you can lose your salvation. The Church of God believes that, the Assembly of God, the Free Will Baptists. They believe that when you get saved, that if you sin and kind of turn your back on God, that you can lose your salvation and that you then need to get re-saved again. And one thing that I always ask them is, is, well, what sin causes you to lose your salvation and how far do you have to go to lose it? They can't tell you that. All they know is, is that you can lose your salvation. Now, let me ask you something. Would that be a difficult way to live life? Because you know what I'd be doing? I'd be going down the road, and I'd have a bad thought. And then I'd say, Lord, was that enough for me to lose my salvation? I don't know. Does the Bible say that was that enough? for? No one can tell you that. That is a life of bondage. That is a life of me trying to be holy enough to keep my salvation. Let me tell you something. Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus paid the price for me to be initially saved on the cross, and Jesus is keeping me saved as I live this life. He is the one who saved me, and he's the one that keeps me. I wasn't good enough to save myself, and I'm for sure not good enough to keep myself. We can have security in the fact of knowing that our salvation is a once and for all salvation. And I stand behind, once you're saved, truly born again, you are always saved. And I don't want you to ever believe the lie that someone may tell you that you can lose your salvation because that is not the God we serve. Listen, when you become a child of God, do you think God really calls you a child and then the next day you become a bastard again? Oh, well, come on back in. You're my child again. Oh, wait a minute. Now you're a bastard again, right? You don't have a father. You sin too much. Oh, well, Lord, forgive me. Oh, well, come on back in the family then. No, that's not how our God operates. You are a child of God. You are born into the family of God. And the Bible plainly teaches us that the Lord will lose no one that the Father gives him. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Now listen to this. You think, have I gone too far? Well, let's ask verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not enough? Well, let's go to John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30. The Bible says this, But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I am the Father are one. I'm here to tell you today that based upon the authority of the word of God, once you're truly born again, you are always truly born again and you are the child of God. You can have confidence today in the security of your salvation. And then lastly, if you're taking notes, this is the last thing that we can have confidence in from this passage today and that is we can have confidence in the truth. We find that in verses 19 through 21 of 1 John chapter 5. Let's read those Beginning in verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Verse 19 begins to talk about the truth of the reality that we're living in. Did you hear what verse 19 said? We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That sounds pretty accurate today, doesn't it? When we look at our world, you know, every day when I pull up Fox News on my phone, every day it seems like there's a shooting going on somewhere. Every day it seems like there's people dying. There seems like there's people being uh, riots in different cities across our nation. It seems like the communist China is being more and more bold every single day. It seems like the world around us is falling apart, doesn't it? And, And we start to realize, you know what, there's some truth in this Bible. You know, it's kind of funny, the Bible proves Uh, science, it proves history, it proves understanding of human beings long before human beings finally grasp and understand the real truth. It's funny how the Bible has always one step ahead of us in every single way. But the Bible's teaching us here that the world is currently being controlled by the evil one. The Bible calls him the God of the air, the, the, the one who is the Antichrist, the one who is perpetuating the spirit of the Antichrist in our world, in our government, and among our politicians, and, and, and in other nations, in the Communist Party, and socialism. All of these things are working together because of the spirit of the Antichrist. We know that the book of Revelation tells us of future events, and there are certain things that have to align for those things to take place. And I'm sorry to say, but for the nation of Israel to be attacked and to be destroyed, the American society as we know it is going to have to be taken out of the way. And it's sad to hear, but America is on the decline. The Bible teaches us that nations rise and nations fall, but the word of God endures forever. Even America is not above the fall that the sin of this nation is bringing. The judgment of God is falling upon this country. Today, my friends, it's not just a facade. It's not, it's not something that we can just say, well, maybe we'll rebound. No, this nation is going to decline and continue to decline. And it is not going to get any better until Jesus 
comes back, until Jesus takes over and until his kingdom is established. I'm so thankful that my salvation is not rooted in the United States of America. I'm so thankful that my salvation is not rooted in patriotism. Hey, it's great to be a patriot. You ought to serve your country and love your country. But above all, you're a child of the king. You're a child of the kingdom of heaven. And we serve a king who does not decline. We serve a king that does not stop being in control. We serve a king who is for sure going to win in the end. And I am so thankful for that. So as we look around this world, we see the decline. We see the the lack of truth in people's minds. We see that everyone is now creating their own truths, and it's pulling them more into chaos, into insanity, you know, to the point where, you know, it's offensive to call someone uh, a, a he or a she because, you know, they may not identify as a he or she that day. That's how chaotic and insane. It, it's, it's a delusion is what it is. It's people uh, creating things that aren't even there and, and assuming that they have the uh, capability and the qualification to determine their own sex when in no way in history has humanity ever took it upon himself to declare his own sex. It's always been God who declares our sexes. Listen, when I was born, guess what? I was a boy. I look like a boy, and guess what? Today, I'm still a boy. If I wake up tomorrow and I feel like a woman, guess what? I'm still a boy, amen? And that's okay for us to preach the truth of the Word of God. And you think, well, why is this place going crazy out here? It's because they've forsaken this and they've created their own truth. And mankind will always lead himself into destruction every single time. You know, I think about the government. Everything the federal government touches, they mess it up. You, you, think, you think about uh, the education system, right? How, how they have infiltrated our education system in a way. Parents now have to be on the guard. And I'm thankful that we have a great Great school system here in Buncombe County. But not everybody can say that across this country. Not everyone can say that. But, you know, everything they touch, they mess it up. You know why? Because they're playing God. They're trying to take care of everything. They're trying to control everything. And listen, when you take it out of the hands of the Almighty, it'll mess up every single time. Y'all remember me saying that. Verse 20, and I'll get back on the sermon here. Verse 20. (laughs) And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know The true one. Uh Uh-oh, you hear that word true? There is a true one. There is an objective truth that is always right. Here, next part of the verse, we are in the true one. Does that mean there's only one that's true? Yes, that is in his son, Jesus Christ. You think about truth. I'm not talking about a textbook of truth. I'm not talking about some some, uh, list of of truth or, or something that someone's written. There is a person who is truth, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He embodies truth, and he is truth. He is God. He was the creator in the beginning. He spoke all things into being. He determines what's right and wrong. He determines truth, and his truth is truth always. The Bible teaches us that his word endures forever. You know what I love? Um, Actually, even before the 1611 King James Bible, there was a Bible called the Geneva Bible. And I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that translation, but it was translated in the year 1599. And it was the Bible that the pilgrims used when they left Europe and they settled on the coast of the United States of America. And as I was looking through different translations of the Bible and seeing how these different translations handled verse 20, I noticed that this was the only version that handled it in this way. And I believe that it's probably the most accurate. So let's go back to verse 20 in the Christian Standard Bible real quick. And what it says is, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. Then he says, We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ, period. And then it says, He is the true God and eternal life. 
Well, a lot of people who don't believe that Jesus is God is going to take that period there and they're going to say, well, there's a, a division in the thought process. And after that, when it says he is the true God in eternal life, they're saying that talks about the Father, not the Son. But then there's other scholars that will say, well, because Jesus is mentioned closest to that statement, it must be talking about Jesus. Well, the Geneva Bible says this, but we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us a mind to know him, which is true, and we are in him that is true, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ, comma, the same is that very God and that eternal life. Now listen, I'm not saying that our versions of the Bible, whether it be the King James or the CSB or whoever else puts that period there, is wrong. But what I'm saying is, is that it is speaking and saying that Jesus Christ is that one true God. It's not saying that Jesus is not God. It's not dividing Jesus from the Father, but it's saying that one true God that put all things into motion, who is the one that paid the price for our sins, who is the one who is the creator and the sovereign God of all the universe, he is the true God and eternal life. Listen, we can have confidence in the truth that Jesus is God. He is God. And then lastly, we see this in verse 21. It almost seems like it shouldn't be there, that it's maybe like a, something that just, John throws a little zinger in there at the very end, but it actually fits perfectly in this passage. Little children, in verse 21, guard yourselves from idols. You know, John was talking to a group of Christians who were kind of new at being Christians. This was the first century. Jesus had only died and rose again probably some 30 years before. These Christians were starting to serve him. And he was trying to encourage them to be careful that as they walk through this world, not to worship idols. As we walk through and as we pick up different things, it is so tempting to begin to worship things other than God. And we have to be very, very careful that on our priority list of most important things in our life, that God is always Number one. You may say, well, Ben, is my wife supposed to be number one? No, God. You serve God before your spouse. Your spouse is second, but you serve God first. Remember, I've even said this in our Bible study before. I, when I'm doing premarital counseling with someone, and I, I tell them this, I say, if you are looking to get married because you want this other person to fulfill you, you are going to be sadly disappointed. But if you are going into marriage because you want to lead them to Jesus closer, you want to love them, you want to make their life better, then you're doing it for the right reason. And I say this because only one person can fulfill you. Only one. And you were created for only one person to fulfill you, and that is God. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you ever look for anything else to fulfill you, I promise you it's futile, it's not going to last, it's going to be disappointing. But if you let Jesus fulfill you, you'll never, ever be unsatisfied. Let's pray.